Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Never Seen Trek podcast. I'm Sam, or Never Seen Trek on Twitter. Hello, I'm Patrick. I'm Ingiris42 on Twitter. I write about Star Wars X-Wing sometimes, which is probably illegal for me to be on a Star Trek podcast, but whatever. <laughs> also, if you want to know more about uh, my inspiration, Ingiris, uh, check out the new uh, Godzilla Singular Point on Netflix. I'm John. I am on Twitter at Bad Socialism. Um, I talk a lot about Star Trek and history and other nonsense things, but you can also find me at the I Quit Star Trek podcast, available on Twitter at Quit Star Trek Pod, where once a week I talk about how fucking horrible Star Trek can be. Oh dear. And this podcast is basically a ripoff of that, so if you're listening to this, definitely go listen to that as well. I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's, it's definitely meant this one. Um, Patrick, are we, have you signed a sponsorship with Netflix that you didn't tell me about or something? Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, Angiris content is few and far between. It's not like Spock content, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'll, I'll take the sponsorships as long as I'm getting a cut, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I'm entitled to anybody, but I'll take some if it's going. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> fucking hell. Um, so our first episode this week is Alan of Troyes, which... <sighs> Is not the strongest start to the batch that we've had. I will defend a lot of Troyes for 20 minutes of the 45-minute run, and I will defend it to the death for those 45 for those 20 minutes. Is that Everything the last else about this trash, but I will defend is it, the last it for 20 those 20 minutes. 20 minutes. You're defending. Yes, obviously the last 20. Minutes. <laughs> Good. Everything else about it is dog shit. It's it's 40 well 25 minutes of a woman acting like a toddler, and then 20 minutes of some semi-decent. Uh, like semi-decent. It's the so, best space battle in Star Trek. I'm sorry. In, in the well, I was I thought you were going to say in the original series. Then no, I think would, it's amazing. I, I think it's the best ship-on-ship combat sequence in Star <laughs> Trek. Maybe Balance of Terror and the Doomsday Machine are on par with it, but I think it is actually one of the best co- starship combat sequences in the entire show. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll quick and dirty summarize. There's uh, inter, you know, interplanetary politics. Uh, two races have to, uh, on two different planets, have to join together. But uh, one of them is, from our perspective, uh, a bunch of jerks. So three rude football players and an extremely rude uh, Naked woman. woman. <laughs> um, and they're going to be slowly ferried to the other planet, um, and they have to quote unquote civilize the Elasian dolmen, Ilan, lots of E-L sounds, uh, so that she can marry the head of this other planet, Troyus. Um, but she stabs their ambassador, which was brilliant by the way, because he was pretty annoying. Um, and for no very well explained reason, uh, Kirk has to reenact uh, Taming of the Shrew. Um, which is, of course, you know, a nightmare when it's done with not any sense of subtlety and also in the 1960s. Uh, where I will intercede is on the behalf of the guest actor who I think did some interesting things with a pretty um, underwritten part. In particular, um, being mostly familiar with the third season of Star Trek by like descriptions and synopsises, because most of it didn't sound very good. Um, I was impressed by the way she clearly played it as not, you know, 
I'm falling for Kirk's affections so much as I've decided to deliberately mind control Captain Kirk so that I don't have to marry this person I don't know. Yeah, I think, I mean, we talked about that a bit when we had, we did a line on the, my podcast, fifth episode we did, we spent a lot of time talking about starships, but uh, it is interesting how much, um, what's her name, portrays the Dolman as having a lot more agency than I think she has on first glance. Yeah, she's definitely, she's, she's not just a sort of female character who doesn't have any power like you sort of see in a lot of well, not even necessarily always in the original series, but was typical of the era, at least. She has a lot of her own sort of agency in her own. She's quite cunning, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. Yeah, she's very and, clever. And as a brief student of acting, um, I've spent some time looking at the relationship between the words on the page and the actor and what they have the power to change and what they don't. Um, and I, I will continue to characterize this as a pretty talented person making the best of an underwritten role without changing anything per se, but just in how they seize those little moments. Like that moment then, the moment when she cries in front of Kirk is very good because it feels deliberate. And it yeah, it's feels de- like it's she's deliberate. taking advantage of him. It, yeah, yes, yes, but I think that comes from the way it's played um, rather than the way it was on the page, which is what I was saying I liked about it so much. Yeah, definitely. You can definitely I mean, it, tell it, that from the rest of the episode. <laughs> yeah, well, because they stopped giving her as much as much to do, um, and, and, it, and it suffers. But on the other hand, like you said, we get the great battle with the Klingons. Um, Obviously, it's a fantastic showcase of their... It, really the only showcase of their fancy new model um, because uh, yeah. you don't see very much of it in Day of the Dove and then just sort of in static shots in the, the Romulan one. Um, so it's great to really see that cat and mouse with the Enterprise. I, you got like a whole wargaming system out of this episode, basically. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful portrayal of three-dimensional combat and the nature of you know in some TOS is hornblown space and this is a hornblown space episode yeah you know if you told me Captain Hornblower has to ferry a infantile a terrible Spanish princess to a marriage and put to her marriage and encounters a French frigate on the way that's this episode absolutely the one that's something that's when the original series is at its strongest, I think, is when it's doing these. Like, there's all the talk of a lot of the episodes being linked to sort of submarine dramas and stuff like that. I think t- Absolutely. the original series is at its strongest when it's taking from other genres and using space as a backdrop rather than a limitation. Well, I think Star Trek just... I mean, you've only watched TOS, so uh, yeah. find this out. But Star Trek is at its strongest as a setting for other stories. You know, the best stories in Star I think there are some exceptions where it is doing beautiful science fiction stuff in science fiction settings. There's something like The Visitor, which you'll get to and will destroy you. Right. Um, um, is doing a... Is that. But most of the time, the best stories in Star Trek are doing genre fiction. Balance of Terror, um... City on the Edge of Forever. It's genre fiction for still. I think the problem Milan has is that the genre fiction it was basing on just wasn't very... 
good and the script wasn't very good. Mm. And I get the distinct feeling the writer wanted an excuse for the battle. Yeah. Um, so anyway, just, just to frame what we were talking about. So we have the warring cultures and there's this sort of, this sort of artificial mystery built in like why the Federation and then it's revealed the Klingons are so interested in these internal politics. And it turns out that dilithium crystals are just like springing up like weeds on these planets, apparently. Which, um, which, which confused uh, me slightly because they make a big deal of this necklace. It's like, oh, it's the king's necklace. It's a very special thing. And then they're like, oh, yeah, well, dilithium crystals are fucking everywhere on our planet. I thought, well, the necklace isn't worth much, then, is it? Yeah, you kind you kind of have to no prize it because, like, it might be that they're, you know, on Troyes, this is very valuable, but then Elan was insulted because they're just common stones on her planet. But you, yeah, because the, the the necklace is a gift from the from the Troyan government. Oh yeah, true. That's Whereas, but um, it's she's just like they're everywhere on our planet. Yeah, but it does seem a little a little bit under you know underplayed. Uh, but then, you know, the Klingons pay off the, her guards and they destroy the Enterprise crystals, so they have to use the crown jewels of the necklace, which is ridiculous, but so entertaining that I forgive it. That they're just like feeding. They're just feeding. Yeah, they're feed. They're feeding crystals into. They're, they're feeding the crown jewels into, like, the engine of the Enterprise, and they fight off the Klingons at the last minute. Uh, so the one thing that I really do have to dock this this episode on, though, in that last 20 minutes, is the very ineffective Klingon commander. After episode after episode of great Klingon guest stars, um, the whole sequence would have been infinitely more effective if the Klingons just never answered their hails and just kept coming as this creepy, implacable presence. Yeah, I think that would have been better, because he just flicks somebody and goes, fuck off. It'd be funny if just we just had um, Uhura getting silent answers. But mm. I think, I mean, there's there's little bits of this I like, which is I like that it's make this is another episode which makes the galaxy feel lived in, and that you know you have this politics of these two planets, and you know, Kirk and the, the Kirk and the gang have their marching orders, and they're like, you know, Scotty's like, why are they so interested? And Kirk's like, we do what we're fucking told to do. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's how it works, and that you know this very small planet on the Klingon border is up to their elbows in, you know, the most important mineral of the galaxy. It is interesting, too, how in several of these episodes, the Starfleet Command is presented as a very significant plot restraint. Um, and in one of the episodes, they do end up disobeying the orders, but it's sort of treated with a lot of weight. And you notice that they couldn't really do that anymore after Star Trek Three, the film, which we'll get to. But, like, after that point, it became almost more red that, like, Starfleet commands a bunch of idiots and the main characters are obviously going to defy orders if they're going to get a better resolution. Yeah, well, it's, um, I guess that reflects on the writers, because the thing to remember, of course, is that TOS is written by people who'd gone and fought in the war. Yeah. Gene yeah. Roddenberry flew with the 8th Air Force, you know, uh, James Doohan went on shore on D-Day. These are people who... Don't just understand it, Chenekaban. They were part of them. So they under and they're also writing off of genre fiction like Hornblower, where the Chenekaban is writing. So mm -hmm. when Staffy Command says, "Go to Troyes, pick this woman up, take her to take her to take her to Troyes, get her married," you do what you're told. And it's also this is sort of before Starship really establishes the bad man trope. 
Like well, the yes, in, yes and no. I, I think well, the that... admirals we see in TOS are dicks, but they're not <laughs> around long enough to be bad morals. It's 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 not. I think that that out of universe, you're you're getting that the audience expectation of you know, okay, these guys are idiots. But then in universe, Kirk and Spock and McCoy don't really like. They kind of grouse about them. But they don't expect them to be idiots, which is a subtle gradation, but I think it's there. Well, let's see, they have the usual gripes that junior commanders have about their seniors, which is they don't know what's going on, they're not at the front. You know, in like in a mock time where the Admiral's like, you can't just take Spock to Volker, we have a fucking election, you have, you have to go to Royal Tail Port with a fucking election, which is proper command shit, because, you know... Admiral, what's his name? Dealing with heart, dealing with that corner of the galaxy, doesn't give a shit about your Vulcan commander. He doesn't want there to be another fucking war. Yeah, you do so get... you can you can easily imagine, um, you know, lots of elements of Elan of Troyes obviously wouldn't pass muster these days, um, for many very good reasons relating to sexism. You could do the duty and responsibility speech that Kirk gives her. But I don't think in Star Trek anymore you could say, you know, it's so it's it's critically important that I follow my orders. Because I think to kind of replace the trope that like the captains are out there on their own, you know, now in the later series you have instant communication, but then the captain's judgment is sort of elevated higher than it I, was before. Honest I mean it's some um... Okay, side note, I'm going to do some shameless plugging here, which is one of the things I'm writing in my spare time is a history of the Federation Klingon Cold War, because it's stupid and fun and massive and it takes up my time. <laughs> but one of the things that actually makes it really interesting is that because of how TOS is written with all the age of sail trips, communication takes time. Hmm. And it takes a long time. And I think that is a really good storytelling factor. That Kirk doesn't get to ring Starfleet Command and go, our end of the fuck to the Klingons are tailing us. He's got to deal with it on his own. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a storytelling factor that TNG and DS9 and even Enterprise, as you'll discover, I'm just telling you, you know, the listeners will understand what I'm talking about. Sorry, sir. Yeah, no, go um, Just don't utilize properly. And even Discovery didn't. That, um, Characters, especially characters like Kirk or Picard or Cisco and all the way to Burnham, come into the room where they're in situations where they have to think on their feet. That's that's just a rule of fiction. And TOS is because it's relying on age to sell lit um tri- what's the word? Tropes. It gets to do that a lot. Whereas I think a lot of the new shows really miss the opportunity to do that. You know, I think a lot of the t- Age of Sail tropes of Star TOS are at the core of Star Trek. They're just getting ignored. For, you know, there's good reasons. I don't think we need to hear more about Chris Pike wanting to be a slave trader. Ever. No, definitely not. But I think bringing back things like, you know, captains, it's hours, you know, it's de- hours, if not days, before you hear a reply from Starfleet Command. Or, um, you know, we make fun of you're the only ship in the quadrant, but there's something to be said about a ship where it's, just, it's not just, you, you know, it might not be the only ship in the quadrant, but you can't call for backup. Yeah. And so, really emphasizing that. Because like an episode like this, the Enterprise feels alone. You know, when Kirk mm. is coming under attack with the Klingons, he's like, and they're like, we, we'll never get a reply. It's like, reinforcements could come. The squ- a, you know, a pursuit squadron could be sent out for the nearest starbase, but it won't arrive in time. Mm-hmm. And those so, are sh- tropes I like. 
Yeah. So what I was to to kind of um, wrap up my my thoughts that I was building to, and hopefully be able to move on to the next episode after, depending on what you think, is I think there's been a shift from because the main characters have to drive the plot; they just have to. That storytelling. So there's been a shift from we can't contact superiors over the years to we can contact our superiors, but they don't have the context and they don't have the experience. And then the drama comes from knowing what your superiors want and then doing something different. Which I think is something that we'll touch on as well when we get to uh, one of the later episodes in this batch, which is the Mark of Gideon, is that comes up a lot again with the sort of mm. conflict between the the context and the yeah. situation that the crew are in and then the responses they're getting from Starfleet where they don't really know what's going on and they're just trying to do the diplomatic thing all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's um very typical of the fact that, you know, Roddenberry and his crew were most of them mid-ranking officers and Set as um, personnel in the war, which is that your superior tells you what to do. You're like, why the fuck you want me to do that? Because you don't know what the superior's looking at. You know, Jim Kirk knows what's going on on Gideon when we get to it, but you know his superior is staring at a map of the of the Beta Quadrant. Where he's like, if we don't get Gideon on the side, there might be a domino effect across all the way to the Klingon border. We can't risk that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know it doesn't. I, new Star Trek needs more perspective. I'm gonna have, but that's my jeans vision rant done. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I picked up a few bits of um, trivia for this episode. I, if people who've not listened to the earlier episodes, I normally pick out a few bits of trivia um, to talk about. I definitely didn't copy that from you, Jack. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> that's nice. I'm from it. No, um... great minds think alike. <laughs> um, no, well, it, it's. Yeah, I'm just not going to address that anymore. Um, something that I picked up in my in my trivia research that particularly annoyed me about this episode, just because why they actually they filmed a scene for this episode that didn't make it into the episode, which was just a scene of Spock playing the Vulcan harp. Why would you cut that? Why would you put it in? Because it's Spock playing the harp. From a, yeah, that's that's great. And if you can find a way to work it into the episode, sure. But I just don't. But it's Spock playing the harp. That's lovely, dear. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Um, no, it's just um, you know, it would be great. But it's also just very much like I could see why on the category in the category they were like, I literally can't figure out how to put this into the episode. Yeah, that that's fair. That's fair. I just really wanted to see Spock playing the harp. That's um, fair enough. What else did we have? Um, this is the only episode in the original series to actually contain the line, you're out of your Vulcan mind. <laughs> despite that obviously becoming quite a iconic sort of part of the mythos around the original series. This is the only time it's ever actually said. At least in the in the series. I don't know if it comes up in the movies at all. It, yeah, it, it comes up in the movies, but, but no, the, yeah, that's interesting. And what's also interesting is... I didn't even catch it when I actually watched the episode. I saw it in the trivia later, and I was like, oh, hey, wild. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, so... um, it's interesting how tropes develop, especially like ones like that. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's the same as like as the whole thing about Beam Me Up Scotty never actually being mentioned at all. That, you, that... Get, um, you get a lot of Scotty Beam Us Up. Yeah. But somehow 
pop culture decided that that needed to become Beam Me Up Scotty, despite that never being said. Okay, sure. Um, but yeah, that's Alana Troyes. We'll, we'll move along. The next episode we need to cover is Whom Gods Destroy. I'm just going to prepare by... Um... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mind How this you episode. Sum this up, so it, you know, so Kirk and Spock beam down to the quote-unquote last mental asylum in the galaxy um, because society is so perfect now, apparently that only fifteen people are crazy, um, and uh, what? And you know, it's an ableist nightmare out of the 60s um, but then things are complicated because one of the most bonkers ones and also the only really violent one which is at least something uh, can shapeshift now and he's also one of uh, Kirk's uh, cadethood inspirations because he was a great starship captain not that any of it really comes across it's told not shown um, and he's trying to get to the Enterprise and escape and like, rule the universe, but um, doesn't Curse really get... Isa is a very interesting character. Yeah. In all the other media he appears in. Oh, see, I, see, I, w- I, I wouldn't even know. Um, but yeah, then, yeah, I, well, he... I'll cover that later. Well, he spends most of the episode throwing tantrums because he can't get around Kirk's very basic security precautions uh, about... Which never show up in any other episode, despite being really quite obvious security precautions. Yeah, well, no, it's like... So I can't hold it against this episode because I actually like that it's here. I just am not sure why it's never anywhere else. Um, The Queen's Queen's Level 3 stuff is good. Yeah, it is good. But it's, it's the sort of good that should have been there the entire time. And then eventually Garth's entire plan falls apart, not because any of the good guys do anything smart or interesting, but just because it didn't really cohere in the first place, which again, I don't know if it's an intentional statement or just bad writing. Uh, You can never tell. It's late stage TOS, you can never tell. And then the episode ends and the only person who was killed was the attractive woman. Because of course. Of course. (laughs) Because it's, it's the um, original series, or a green, green, green Batgirl, I should say. <laughs> it's um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's very difficult to know what whom's God destroy is trying to say, except don't, except never meet your heroes, and um, yeah, but even pe- then, it's never meet your heroes mad. because. Mm-hmm. Even even then, it's never meet your heroes because this specific hero went insane. Under As very a... dubious circumstances that somehow also granted him perfect shape-shifting. Yeah. Well, basically, if I, he, like, was dying and these people on this planet rebuilt him using their own medicine, and that meant he was now able to shape-shift, and his reaction to that was to destroy them, so only he had that superpower. Which, yeah. um... I mean, even that's kind of a no prize, though. He doesn't talk about that. We just get told about it. Yeah, it's it's. This episode does a lot of telling rather than showing. Mm. Which, yeah. It's not a um. Not a good episode. I think it was the end of that sentence. Yeah, it's got interesting concepts like the concept. Of, we, it's like we just get the line: "Gas of Isar, you know, victor at the Battle of Axanar." Mm-hmm. Which, you know, a lot of people have spiralled a lot of fan content off of that sentence. For better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, um... 
You not watch? Have you? You've not watched Prelude to Axon, have you, Sam? No, but I've I've know about it. I've sort of read up about it. <laughs> Prelude to Axonar is a very interesting twenty-minute proof of concept, which suffers from the fatal flaw of which it has absolutely nothing interesting to say. <laughs> you know, it's um. One of the I'm gonna plug again. One of us in this at the edge of midnight, which is available on my Twitter if you want to read it. One of the things is how does one what happens when you try and make what sacrifices is a democratic society like the Federation willing to make to beat the Klingons? And that's an interesting question about things like the security state and interventionism and the morality of intervening when you are a non-interventionist society. Battle of uh, Prelude to Axino is basically, ooh, what if we did a Ken Burns documentary in space? And yeah, features he's... the director, Alec Peters, being playing a really... Play... Imagine if Garth of Isar was acted even more woodenly. Really? Yeah. yeah. And Alec Peters is also a piece of shit who's stolen hundreds of not thousands, if not millions of dollars of fans' money to set up his own production studio. And then basically scarfed off. And he stole the Trek memorabilia off of... He stole Trek memorabilia off of a widow. Wow, okay. I think. I can't remember this wizard. But he basically stole... He's basically just stolen shit. He's a horrible human being. And um, they keep talking about this Axanar film they're going to make. They're never going to make it. He's the reason... Privilege Axanar is the reason CBS doesn't allow you to make um, fan films more than 15 minutes long. Yeah. And the key reason, of course, being they tried to monetize it. Yeah, the, the thing about the, the CBS thing case is that CBS came down far too hard on the fan films, but they also came down far too hard on the fan films because um, X and I were pushing their fucking luck. Yeah, it's it's a tricky situation. <laughs> it is, but it's not helped. Like, I would recommend watching Prelude to Axonar. It's actually kind. It's very well produced. It's actually pretty enjoyable. But yeah, it's I'll, not the I'll most interesting thing you could do with the, the line Garth of Isar, Victor, Victor of Axanar. Yeah. I think what's very telling here is that I don't know how long we've been discussing this episode, but we've almost completely avoided discussing this episode and just talked about like little interesting tidbits that spin off it. Um, which Nothing I think is maybe the most, yeah, maybe the most eloquent um, description you could say of this episode. Like, there's all these interesting little bits, like. Um, we get to see more Federation members, which is always nice. There's an Orion, who's not portrayed as an animal or a slave. There's a Tellarite. There's an Andorian. So there's a sort of, you know, in-universe returning to the idea of the Federation as a diverse place, which is always welcome. There's this, again, it's all told, not shown, but it's clearly the most interesting part of this episode is the idea of this, this hero... Um, who they can't seem to decide if he's human or from Earth or not. He kind of talks as if he is and if, as if he isn't. But still, this starship captain, Garth, this this universally respected person, you know, who is out there during the Klingon War and all this, like, there's this this thing for fans to kind of chomp on, but it's all ancillary to the episode itself. It's kind of like back during the second season with Metamorphosis, um, where the only thing that's really brought back from that episode is the concept of Zephram Cochran. Not even the character of Cochran as presented in that episode, but more just that he was a guy and when he lived and what he did. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it's we had you. I don't need to explain my thoughts on Metamorphosis because they go out tomorrow. I was going to say if, if if you want to hear more about mine and my <laughs> thoughts on Metamorphosis, listen to the I Quit Star Trek podcast that's going up tomorrow. Because well, they yeah. even they even mentioned Cochrane in this one. Like, there's all these interesting like tiny little bits of world building, but then they don't really cohere together. Like they the idea that there's this super mental asylum that's under a planetary shield, like that doesn't sound like the Federation. Who does that? Well, it's the sort of thing. I, you know, my um, Watsonian. The, we know we know what the Doylean justification is. They need to do nobody escapes from Alcatraz in space. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the Watsonian justification is um, it's a last resort for them. You know, they've tried everything with these people. But they're just too dangerous. So society, so a, they do what the only thing civil a civil society that will not execute people could do, which is to put them somewhere they cannot hurt the body politic. Until it's they come up with a miracle cure. Yeah, it's space. It's space broadball. So what? You know, Marta is going to quote poetry at you and then maybe stab you a little bit, and so she's got to go on this plant. This I have no planet. idea why Marta's <laughs> like. Yeah, the I mean, I mean, thing is that Garcevizer, who can shape, who is a media, a mass murdering maniac who can shape shift. I can understand but why they didn't he's on know that space Alcatraz. But they well, didn't they know, know he could shape shift, which is the whole plot. Well, no, I think I, you know. Head canon is that they the <laughs> Federation Department of Justice knows he can shapeshift, and the <laughs> governor on Elba Two knows he can shapeshift. But they considered it probably not the best to tell civil society that hero of Axanar, Garth of Isar, is a mass murdering maniac who can shapeshift. You know, it's kind um, of like, oh, by the way, remember remember Douglas MacArthur? Yeah, <laughs> he mur- he just machine gunned a bunch of people that time, just personally. Um, well, he he did yeah, try to start World War Three, but yeah, but we didn't. No one knew that at the time. <laughs> like, imagine if in 1956, Dwight Eisenhower went to television, but by the way, um, Douglas MacArthur tried to start World War Three. Uh, yeah, po- <laughs> point point of order. Um, the the commissioner, what's his face, uh, Corey, does tell Kirk that they had no idea he could shapeshift until he was brought there. Which is how he circumvented their security, but no, I I, I get what you're saying. It's distinctly possible that nobody told Corey. <laughs> Co- Corey seems like the type of character that they would just sort of go, "Ah, you'll figure it out." Yeah, he seems com. It's just, or maybe they just didn't listen. Space is big. He might have just not got the memo. I mean, true. So it's, not you've to. Got a point though. It's a very. It's a plot hole. Yeah, so not to not to step too much on, on Sam's trivia, but by far the most interesting thing about the episode that I've found is that Leonard Nimoy hated it so much that he wrote a memo to Freiberger, the showrunner, and CC'd it to the head of television at Paramount talking about how bad it was and how he was forced to act out of character and act like an idiot. And then, apparently, I have not verified this personally, but reproduce the letter in his autobiography, I Am Not Spock. Yeah, that and was something that I had written on my notes. Yeah, he um, apparently considered it to be an insult that Spock wouldn't know which one the real Kirk oh, was. Oh, it is, but I'm d- what strikes me about it is, wow, when baby boomers wanted to subtweet you, they did not screw around. <laughs> no, if let anybody to throw shade, he'd throw shade. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he threw shade a lot. Yeah, it's... Um... That whole, ooh, how will he figure out who the real Captain Kirk scene is? Um... Well, and then the, the ultimate insult is then they, they lampshade how stupid the whole thing was 
by having Shatner call Nimoy stupid on camera. Yeah. Whew. But to be fair, they, they do then let Nimoy get his own back by saying that he knew which one it was because Kirk would lose the fight. That's quite funny. Mm. <laughs> which is quite sassy. Maybe we'll give him that. Yeah. Um, something it's quite interesting. That adds nothing. <laughs> something quite interesting that I found about this one. I feel like this is one of those things where it comes up in the trivia and you look at it and you go, I didn't pick up on that because this was a really badly written episode if that's what they were trying to put across. Um, apparently the sort of script editors and the script writers for this episode have said that when they wrote this episode, the sort of message for the episode that they had in mind was one of, uh, or sort of talking about the issue of plagiarism. What? Yeah. Um, so they, 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 they give reasoning behind this. Um, the, their first point being, basically, we copied Dagger of the Mind, which, I mean, yeah, sort of. Well, this yeah, but you can't like turn ar- made up. This yeah, you like can't turn around later and be like, "Oh, we ripped it off intentionally," as you know, as a subtle commentary. No, but then they all, they also sort of go on to talk about um, the whole scene with Marta reciting Shakespeare's Sonnet 18. Yeah, she also then- later recites a stanza from Houseman's uh, In Midnight's in November, which so- nobody picks up on in the episode. So only crazy people plagiarize, which is why we plagiarized ourselves. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I think, <laughs> what, what they what they said was that the message was supposed to be that sort of the plagiarism can either go one of two ways. It either goes unnoticed, like with the second uh, poem that's quoted by Marta, or it damages people and causes sort of damage like with the first one and they, they said that their plagiarizing dagger of the mind plays into that as well but i, I don't understand it it it's, feels like an excuse to be honest but yeah i'm, I'm not buying that for a dollar no yeah in the original um run it was really fucking horrible like um garth throws the asylum guards out into the atmosphere and um the asylum that they also really specific like signs of mental illness Oh dear! <laughs> like it was a really vicious episode. Yeah, I mean it. It was anyway, even without the changes, because um, this is one of the episodes we talked about this a little bit last week. There were a batch of episodes that the BBC refused to show in the UK because they considered them sadistic. This was one of those episodes, so this wasn't shown in the UK until the nineties. Yeah, it's just well, you weren't missing much. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not wrong there. A um, couple of bits of trivia I had. I, there's not as much for this one. Um, the costume that Garth is wearing is just a slightly modified version of the costume that the High Commissioner wears in Galileo 7. I love that costume. Which is, costume. which is a choice. <laughs> um, it's a fun costume. It is a fun costume. It's a nice costume, to be fair. It is, it is nice. Um, this was the last live-action appearance of an Orion until Enterprise 35 years later. Apparently. That's probably a good thing. <laughs> and uh, more Nimoy complaining. He also uh, complained that this episode was too similar to Dagger of the Mind. Mm. Which it is. <laughs> um, I think, the t- the- I think Sorry, go on. Just... You, you, it's almost it's like... Like, like nowadays, nowadays, if Trek, Trek took this on, they would probably do something ableist. Here, it's, Here like, it's like... 
What what do you even talk about? There's no correlation to real life mental illness at all. It's just cliches and tropes and just a mess. Yeah, just a mess. I think is is an accurate description. Is distinctly. Um, that's that's actually. They had no fucking clue what they were doing. Um, that description of it as being just a mess is actually quite a nice segue, though, because the next episode is Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Oh, boy! Here we fucking <laughs> I had a feeling you go. Here we go! Oh, God. I will once again shamelessly plug and say, do listen to the episodes of the podcast we did on this. Um, we did this with my dad, which was very fun. He thought it was a fucking mess, too. It... Yeah, definitely. I'm do not going to repeat the hour of content we developed to let that be your last battlefield, but it's fucking stupid. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I think we don't need to say a huge amount on this one here. Obviously, I'm. I mean, I'm white. I don't have as much of a sort of understanding of this as perhaps you do, and obviously your your podcast is probably the better place to sort of listen to stuff about this because you've got more of an understanding of it. But it's it's not good. So it, I, I do want to say a couple things. Um, first of all, if uh, you know, if you're like me and you you know the original, you knew you knew the original series more by reputation than by having binged it. Um, I do want to give some context for maybe why we're being a little dismissive of this episode because it, it's famous for for having taken on you know racism back when it really needed to be taken on. Um, it's just, it's. Well, first of all, it's 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 thuddingly unsubtle, and it's not supposed to be subtle, and it didn't need to be subtle, but it's it's just very very didactic, um, and didactic in that Gene Roddenberry way, where like you know these are my future humans who have solved everything that are commenting on your pitiful past foolish struggles, and you know sometimes that works better than others. Um, but then I, I think maybe the primary mistake is that it's framed as this this conflict of equal opposing forces and visually and by much of the content, but then one of them is presented as an allegory for white people and one of them for black people, which means that we have solid compelling evidence that one side has oppressed, asymmetrically oppressed the other, and then, but then they are presented as equally flawed and equally hateful. And I think that's the, the gut shot that makes it really hard to watch now. Yeah, I think when I, because I did live tweet, I've not been live tweeting all of the episodes recently, but I did live tweet for this one, and I think the way I described it was that it, the the premise fell apart at the point at which you had two characters, one of them going, please don't racially profile me, and the other one going, we put your kind in camps, yes. and those two are seen as equals. Yes, and so that's the kind of thing you it's... wouldn't necessarily get from, like, you know, from reading a, a, reading a description. What I do want to say, historically, um, and you can see some of this even in, like, the comments on the reviews. Like, you know, I, I lived in Louisiana in 1968, and I saw this when it aired. I think it's a very effective piece of propaganda by white liberals uh, at targeted at white conservatives. 
I don't think it has anything skilled or nuanced or effective to say to the victims of racial oppression because it wasn't written by the victims of racial oppression. It was not written by people who understand what it is to be racially oppressed. But I think it does come from people who were like, as part of this power structure, I want there to be less injustice. And even, to some extent, the unequal framing, which is clearly wrong, it's wrong, but I think that helps its message penetrate to diehard, white, conservative, racial separatists. The problem with that is that even at the time, people thought this was shit, right? <laughs> even at the time, people looked at this and went, what the fuck is this? You're both siding. Um, racism. You know, this is 19... This episode came in 1969, a year after Martin Luther... This episode came out after Martin Luther King was assassinated, right? Yeah. To basically say, oh, both sides of this... Both sides of you are just as bad as each other, which is what this episode does. You know, the only good point this episode makes is if you don't, you know, once... If you are keep fighting without aiming for a real end, you will both just destroy each other, which is not a good point, really. No. You know. Is it both siding of the civil rights struggle? No, I. And it's I not a very good one. Well, I, as I was saying, I absolutely agree. That's why I don't think it's particularly good as a piece of art. I don't think it's particularly insightful about racism. But I think that exactly the flaws that we're seeing in them helped it penetrate to some of the people who most needed to think differently. But this is all anecdotal. I was, you know, I wasn't there at the time. I mean, time. The, the thing about trying, the thing about writing a piece of television to appeal to white conservatives is they're not going to fucking watch it. <laughs> you know, writing a piece you, of television. You would think, you would think, yeah, but, but like go to Star Trek forums episodes. today. There's a yeah. lot of white conservatives. Absolutely, but if you write an episode of Star Trek designed to make white conservatives think differently, it's just going to go over their heads. That's true. You're relying on on You're asking a lot conservatives having critical But on the other skills. hand, what in that episode could possibly go over anyone's head? Uh, you, you underestimate the ability You're of the conservatives. conservatives. I mean, what about Star Trek as a franchise could go over the heads of people who think it's not socialist? Mm, yeah. Good point. I mean, it's... People find a way. People do find a way, but... It, <laughs> I have very little respect for anything about this episode. It's just not trying very hard. Yeah. And it's um, very ham-fisted and painfully ham-fisted. You know, for a television show, even in TOS, that could do subtlety quite well. It's sometimes. just not trying. No. Let there be your last battlefield is a distinctly awful episode of television. And it's a hurtful I, episode I, I, of television. I, 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 it's an embarrassing episode of television. Um, yeah, I know. It, it's it's not good. I did have a couple... I mean, there's not a lot of trivia about this episode, I'll be honest. There's, there's a couple of bits. Um, on the note of... We, sort of, we discussed how not subtle this episode was. It was planned to be somehow... Well, maybe not less subtle, but like... Oh, God, the, I know this. I know this. <laughs> keep going, the original keep going. plan for the... I can't remember the name of the planet they're from, but for the, for the people... Um, Cheryl. 
Sharon, that's the one. For the the original plan for the people for Sharon is that the is that they, they would be stereotypically appear well, they would be appearing as the stereotypical image of a devil and an angel. Hmm. Because apparently they didn't think this was obvious enough already. Although I guess at that point you've got a v- you're not both sides in it as much because the devil is very clearly the one in the wrong. Mm-hmm. Assuming that the devil was going to be the supremacist, which I don't know. It's everything about this episode just makes you makes you want to scream. <laughs> yeah. You know, once again, I I direct the listeners to my uh, to my uh, the episode of my own podcast where I talk about this because I'm not I don't really want to repeat myself. But at the end of the no, day, no, of course. I think we'll 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 sort of keep it a bit shorter on this episode because yeah. it is it is quite a controversial one and, and you have already got I, I, the thing i do actually recommend to people is um watch it actually if you're ever like if you do think oh you know they're over it no watch it and think about it and think about how presenting our characters finding the freedom fighter and the oppressor as equally distasteful mm-hmm. think about how that well, sits not, with not you. even equally because they they threaten to lock up the freedom fighter and they have a drink with the oppressor yeah think about how that looks and think about how that look to some think about how that would look to a black family watching star trek in 1968-69 exactly yeah it's not it doesn't it's not comfortable you know no of course it's um stay it's a very stay in your box episode it's i think one of its big one of star, one of tos's biggest and most embarrassing and horrifying failures. I, I, I think I can definitely agree with that, yeah. Um, we'll move on, because <laughs> that's... that's certainly no, I'm so, well, <laughs> I, I, do, I do like to end on something nice, so I, I, I appreciated the self-destruct sequence that's that they did. Fun, yeah. That's a good it, you know, not, not only does it get called back later, but, but just the way, the way it's shot is very different from what you normally see on this show. The close-up yeah, the the it's always in this episode is very unique. It's always fun to see Kirk play play poker. Yeah. Uh, and also, I never regret seeing Frank Gorshin in anything. He is that very is good in this episode, actually. Um, although, although something that did bother me with the self-destruct sequence is, is that the password to deactivate it was zero 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 zero. Well, it's a voice-activated is... code. That's the thing. Yeah. True. True. So, it's different. True. But yeah, we'll we'll move on. Um, next episode for this batch is the Mark of Gideon. Oh, which fuck. isn't <laughs> much better, to be honest. I um I had quite a quite a thread on Twitter earlier today that people might have seen of me just getting very irate over the existence of this episode. Yeah, it's uh, there's. I mean, I love Star Trek. I really do. But there's a genre of badness that's almost unique to Star Trek. It's the failed sci-fi horror mindfuck. Um, and that's the only possible explanation, aside from budget saving, that the plot is that Kirk is beamed into a simulation of the Enterprise and gaslighted for 45 minutes. But it didn't yeah. it doesn't land because you still see the real Enterprise. 
and there's not that much suspense in just finding out what is the nature of the simulation and why. So to and when you to do find out, it's horrible. Yeah. So yeah, to to somewhat to somewhat synopsize and set up. Um, they go to this planet Gideon that no one's ever beamed to or seen, but for some reason is about to join the Federation anyway. Um, it all turns out to be a ruse because when they beam Kirk down, they basically spirit him away and drug him or whatever, and they tell the Enterprise that he never showed up. Whereas they put Kirk on a replica of the Enterprise that's on the surface of the planet. Then they let him wander around being confused. And then they stick a woman in there, probably assuming that they'll end up bumping uglies, which of course they do almost immediately. Um, but then it all turns out to be because, uh, you know, the planet Gideon uh, really stinks because everybody's immortal. Um, and uh, apparently they just keep breeding and not dying. So they need a special disease in Kirk's blood to kill off everybody. Which is... A fucking stupid idea. <laughs> I, you know how this episode came into being. I do actually. Yeah, I had it in my notes, but can go I ahead can and... I say if I remember yeah, correctly, this episode came to be because a guy who played Harry Mudd was no, like, was, I want to. It was do... Serrano Jones. But... The guy who played Serrano Jones. All right, I've had three beers. Give me a minute. <laughs> the guy who played Serrano Jones, like, I would do an episode about overpopulation, and they went. Okay. And then they wrote one without him, I think. Yeah, he hates this episode. He said that he was really dis disappointed in the final product, apparently. Because it's Which, not got anything to say about overpopulation. Really. It's less It's less of a, these are the perils of overpopulation, and more of a, if you have an abortion, we hate you episode. <laughs> it, like, like, they spend a good chunk of time going, we think that life is too sacred to use like any kind of, like, protection Natural. or anything. It's like, Okay. Artificial birth control. Okay, you'd rather, so, so you'd rather slaughter your people. So we're we're kind of coming up on the like um, the 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 mission statement of the episode where the Gideon people finally explain why they did what they did, um, and it <clears throat> it's interesting because in a way I think this is braver than how TNG would have handled it, in that Kirk mentions a lot of possible solutions that didn't get mentioned on TV very much such as contraception, actually using the word, and all these very obvious ways out of the overpopulation trap. Um, but because it has to be an episode about overpopulation, they just patiently explain to Kirk that they're idiots who aren't going to do any of those things. Um, and I feel that on some level, it's, it's not a good episode, but on some level, it does play like a ridiculous, over-the-top, straw-man chastening of Roman Catholics. Yeah. I mean, I was spent all that time watching the episode going, why do you not just colonize another planet? Yeah, yeah that's the one they don't mention, probably because they don't have a solution to it. <laughs> it's just kind of like, go to another planet. Yeah, that, that's a valid. Come point. on. I mean, but it's it's the, it's the whole thing of they're like, well, we think life is too sacred to use contraception. It's like you think life is sacred, so you're poisoning your people. You didn't think this through. To to quote CJ off of CJ Craig off of the West Wing, "Wow, are you stupid?" 
But to, yeah. to get this close to an openly pro-contraception argument on TV, though, much less in 1968, I do have some level of respect for. Even Aaron's if I think bullsy. it's even if I just think it's because they wrote themselves into a corner. But like, I don't think anybody walks away from this episode thinking that the Gideons aren't a bunch of idiots and Except awful people. Because Kirk, Kirk kind of just goes along with what they're saying in the end. Well, Kirk doesn't really go along with saying he's just kind of resigned to the inevitability of it all. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't have he he doesn't have the resources really to go in and change everything. Much he can't, you know, much no, less the right. If, you know, it's um. What is clear, and also the fact that he basically recognizes the Federation needs Gideon at this point. They yeah, can't. Okay. He can't go in gung ho. It's um. It's one of these things that TOS does. That I think, you know, I think TNG onwards doesn't really have to do because by TNG's point, the Federation is the superpower of superpowers. You know, it can fight a. It can fight the Cardassians, and it can be a total war for the Cardassians and a brush war for them. Mm -hmm. Whereas in TOS, the Federation is a major power, and you know it might be geographically the largest power in the galaxy, but it is weak, and it needs support, and it needs people to come on side, and it ne it can't bully people into doing what they want. And you know, Starfleet captains can't use their morality when the higher duty of the Federation is in their way. You know, Kirk might think what's happening to Gideon is wrong, but he also kind of knows that the Federation needs Gideon as a member, and if Gideon wants to have that population decimated by Rigelian fever... Is it Rigelian fever? I think so, Oh, yeah. no, that's yeah. the one in Methuselah. That's Methuselah. Oh. It's va vegan uh, choreomeningitis this time. Very good, oh, yeah. by vegan choreomeningitis. That's their right. I, I, I do also, think I do think it's another odd in, like Kirk's past winds up looking really weird on like Wikipedia just because they write all these strange incidents to have happened to him like oh he was almost holocausted and then at some time he had a rare blood disease and etc 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 Kirk had a, Kirk's early life is fucking traumatic I think people forget that you know Jim Kirk survived a holocaust yeah yeah and, you know, that's, that's changes them. And, you know, yeah, people, he... act, people are like, why is Age of Spock, why is Kelvin Timeline Kirk different? Kelvin Timeline Kirk did not survive the whole, a Holocaust. That's a very good point, actually, yeah. Kelvin Timeline Kirk grew up on, as, with a deadbeat dad on a farm in Iowa. Which yeah, creates a very it, different person different... to somebody who saw heart saw 50% of the population of the place of his home killed in an instant yeah it's um that's that's a very good point actually it's it's you sort of see kirk throughout the original series and you see him as this very sort of strong and resolute leader who i mean he gets things wrong but he's you you don't really think until you sort of look into all the little bits of backstory that they tell you just how like traumatic his life has been but but that's that's the point i'm making though like i don't think that was really part of the premise of the series and i don't really think it's part of shatner's approach to the character i think only in retrospect when you go and actually catalog all these episodes you look at this and go damn well it isn't is because kirk is a hornblower type and one of the hornblower type 
things is the conflict between duty and fear and personality and belonging. You watch, you know, Kirk has had his maximum hornblower in Balance of Terror. And the best scene in Balance of Terror is when he's lying in the bed in his room and McCoy comes in and he basically, you know, the I wish I was on a long sea voyage speech. Which is haunting. You know, I think about that line, that sequence a lot where he's like, why me? Why does it have yeah. to be me? I don't want, it can't, I wish it wasn't me doing this. And that is a deliberate move and that's a deliberate portrayal by Shatner. Oh, yeah, I think I that sense in which Kirk, you know, tragic might be overstating, but at the very least is a conflicted figure who is, I wouldn't say scared of death, but laments death and fears death and wishes that he never had to send people to their deaths and he was never responsible for any. Is that the core of his character? I think we forget that. You know, I remember we all did the Apple on the podcast and I never realised till then there was a scene in the Apple where Kirk's basically like, I've killed four people today and 430 are about to come tumbling out of the sky and it's all my fault. That's really powerful. I wish and the third season had remembered that a little bit more, though, because we get him just, like, beaming security guards into space and shit. Well, we get it in, um, this yeah. episode a bit, because we get him being like, um, I can't be responsible for the death of this entire planet. Mm. You can't make me do that. And they're like, it's, over. it's too late now. It, it is interesting, because when, when, he ga- when he has that conflict with Hoden... It is very interesting from a bodily autonomy perspective because he's like, you know, I don't really care what you do, but you, you know, you took this from me and you're, you're, you're making me into something I didn't want to be. It doesn't really get resolved, but it's nice that it got brought up. It's, it's, it's a very sad season two of episode in which there is an interesting concept of the heart of it they didn't get to do. Well, and in the in the sense of wrapping up with something vaguely positive, because th- this one's a dog, um, I did I did very very much laugh when uh, Hoden uh, talked about Scotty to Spock as the your excitable repairman. Scotty looks so <laughs> fucked off when he says that. I mean, like, I mean, the yeah. Fuck, do you think you are? <laughs> I think particularly, I mean, in this block, and obviously we'll get to it later. Um, where it's not necessarily a, a sort of positive uh, example of it, but I think particularly in this block and in season three in general, that, that you start to see more of Scotty as a developing character, sort of starting from the sort of era of uh, Trouble with Tribbles and that sort of thing, and going through into this series and through this series. He's more of he's he's more of a character rather than just an engineer. He's part of the ensemble in season one, and then. At, towards the end of season one, the first time of season two, once they dump the ensemble cast, they're not quite sure what to do with him. They sort of, you're right, they pick him up quite clearly from Trouble with Trouble. Well, they pick him up from Who Mourns with Adonis, actually. Yeah, okay, true. I did notice that, and I noticed that even though George Takai is back full time, they like to have Scotty command the Enterprise in these in these episodes. And I think it's just because he's increased in prominence as a character so much. It's not a bad. It's not a bad thing at all. I, I I like that dynamic actually with Scotty in the chair and Sulu uh, and Sulu uh, flying. That Scotty's is great that... in the chair. We need more Scotty in the chair, Conda, because him and Uhura bounce off each other really well. Definitely, I think that um that thing with sort of like you said with them using Scotty a lot more in the chair 
as opposed to Sulu. That did come to an extent from Shatner, apparently, though, because I was looking into this recently uh, as just sort of generic general research about the sort of less than stellar relationship that Shatner had with his co-stars. Uh, he definitely in the movies, and I think a little bit towards the end of series three, he made it explicit that he would not uh, well, it, particularly in the movies, he refused to uh, record any scenes in which he was handing the helm over to Sulu because he disliked George Takei that much. What? He said, <laughs> I will Holy not because there's God. a scene where I can't remember the character's name and obviously I've not seen the movie so it doesn't mean a lot to me but there's a scene where this character who is very clearly not as high a rank as Sulu is given the helm in one of the later films, five or six I think and that it's com it's commonly brought up so well why wasn't Sulu given the helm and the answer is because Shatner refused to film the scene of him saying Sulu take the helm. I think it might be five. That's not the one. I it doesn't happen in six because he's not on the ship. Mm. It'll be yeah, it'll be five then. Wow. Well, in well, in that case, Shatner was directing. Um, so Which yeah, makes sense. he would okay, have yeah, that the power to them. do that in 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 Trek Five. But Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, now I feel bad for saying anything. <laughs> um, we all know what shit this. We all know shit. Well, this I mean, sucks, and, and, and what's funny is that Duin absolutely despised him too. So, oh, most of the most of the sort of auxiliary crew despised yeah, him. Yeah, but Takei I would say still despises him more so than Takei and Koenig, at least in the '90s when I was paying attention. Duin was kind of publicly known for having no civil relationship with Shatner. Yeah, I think. Well, Duhan um, never took shit from anyone. That's very true. <laughs> du Duhan was a was a was a good soul. Um. Yeah. All right. Shall we move? What's the next one? It's um. It's is it that yeah. which survives. The next episode is that which survives. Yeah. Which glorious, glorious Mabenga content. That's really <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. That's the only good part. The only good part of that episode is Jabilio Mabenga. Assistant um, surgeon of the The Enterprise. only good part of any episode that has Mabenga in it is Mabenga. All right, okay. We're no, not, are it, we going to have private? We're going to have private little war discourse on this episode. We'll we'll try not to because we need to get through this. Okay, <laughs> okay I I have to register my disagreement. I thought by a pretty comfortable margin this was the best of the batch, and I've always had a soft spot for it. To tell you the truth, it's not. I wouldn't say it's a. Or, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's an awful episode. I think it has it has merits. I think it it doesn't have enough content. And this is something that we've talked about a lot, and Patrick, you've said a lot. It doesn't have enough content to fill a fifty minute slot. Yeah, it's an episode in which not a lot actually happens, except a ship's geologist who seems like a nice young man dies, and um, Scotty discovers his engines are fucked, and. We were introduced to another black guy on the Enterprise that seems cool, and then he dies. Because, of course. He seems... I like him. He's a very... Watkins, he seems nice. Watkins, And then yeah. he dies. He, well, it's, for for the all thing of that is, five seconds that he gets, yeah. But, but that's the thing. It's so rare to see any other crew members other than the big five and the... Or the big seven and, like, the recurring extras. Aside from that, it's so rare to see anyone in season three. And we get a number of characters in this episode, and some of them even live. <laughs> we, get Watkins, we get we get the really cool woman who helms in Sulu's place. She's yeah, Rada. Yeah, Lieutenant she just Rada. appears for that episode, and it, I, I don't know if she comes up later. 
because I've still got six episodes of original series left to watch. She turns up in the books. Where where did she come from? Lieutenant Rada. She just yeah. She's just. I, mean, I, 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 I love that she's there. She very much came out of nowhere. Well, yeah, but but that's the thing. It's the it's the Enterprise. You have all the all this crew, you know. So it's I, not it's not a stretch that people yeah. rotate in and out. But what you just don't expect to see at this point is a woman, um, you know, from a, you know who's who appears non-white. Unfortunately, it was brown face, but it was the '60s. Um, was it who, brown face? Yes, I oh I, checked, I checked it out. <laughs> oh my god. Oh no no no! Well, we were talking about this before recording. Actually, um, she was uh, she was Jewish American, um, was I think she might even still be alive, um, but she was at the time the real life spouse of the painter Reginald Pollock, who, in the Requiem for Methuselah episode that we'll get to next week, is an identity of Mr. Flint. That's hilarious. So it's an unusual crossing over of the fictional uh, boundaries for uh, for early Star Trek. Um, I can't but you believe know, but I mean, Khan Khan is brown faced too, so it, unfortunately, it's a little bit expected for the era. But she's a great character. She talks back to Spock, and and I you know <laughs> identifies problems, solves problems. You know, she has a very similar role that like Sulu would have had in season one. Um, but and again, she's not the only one like that. The you know, uh, Diamato is a, l- a little bit of a gag, um, unfortunately. But then the engineer in uh, you know Scotty's assistant is completely professional, and just is in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you used to get these little parts like like Kevin Riley in season one, and it's just. Well, it's Riley kind was meant to be a. Um... Because season one is such an interesting... They're trying so hard to have a similar cast. Like, you watch something like... Um, sure Leave. Where you spend all this time focusing on these characters you never see again. It's fun. Or yeah, the Galileo it's... 7, where they, were, they wanted Lieutenant... They wanted to bring Boma back for um, other episodes. But the guy who played Boma was in another TV show. It's a real yeah, damn so... shame. He's a good character. So it's, it's nice to see that again. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... Star Trek struggles with what to do outside of its big seven characters, you know, usually. I think Miles O'Brien is a good example of where they get it right, because even in TNG, he feels like a fleshed-out character. And then you get him in other... You get He gets to be his own character in DS9, which has an incredibly large and wide-varying cast of regulars and recurring characters. Well, Miles got a first name before Sulu did. Oh, yeah, because Sulu <laughs> get a first name. When does Sulu get his first name? Canonically, 1991. In, um... In Star Trek Six, yeah. That's insane. Uhura didn't get wow. hers until 2009. Yeah, it's... It's nuts. Because well, yeah, hers came from Fanon, did well, it Well, in both cases, they came from Fanon, and they were approved by the actors, um, yeah. and then became canon, but... Well, it's, my um, po- my yeah. point stands. <laughs> um, Nyota Uhura and Ikaru Sulu turn up as their full names as early as in um, fan works and official license works as early as like 1975, 1974. But they don't appear on screen until much later. Mm-hmm. It's, I always thought it's interesting that Montgomery Scott is canon really <laughs> early on. I don't know when it's first mentioned, but it's a very early canon. Whereas it's... It, 
season one at least, I think. Well, he's, and, he's and Pavel Chekhov is established almost immediately, so you do feel like it's kind of pointed with these... First of all, these two non-white characters who also have very inauthentic last names, if you, if you do your homework on it. Uh, so, and yeah. then their first names wound up taking so long, it's a little bit like... Yeah. It's very much, well, I don't know what I expected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, guys, it's all Roddenberry's vision. It's fine. Anyway, um, aside from having this, this interesting <laughs> ensemble, which is literally the only thing we've managed to talk about from this episode, um, I'll sum it up and maybe, and maybe explain why I, why I like it, kind of. So the Enterprise comes across this mysterious planet, as they often do, as almost every episode starts. Um, and they are getting these strange geological readings, and so they beam down with the ship's geologist. Novel, right? Uh, but they trip an ancient uh, warning system from an extinct civilization, which, you know, I, I like that trope. Sue me. Um, and it... We, and we don't know this at first. This is one of the central mysteries of the episode, which I love. It beams, as in transports the Enterprise um, a thousand light years away, um, which ends up causing technical problems on the ship. And then it strands the landing party on a hostile planet. And then if that wasn't enough, um, the defense system continues. It manifests this image of the outpost's captain, who is the episode's beautiful woman in a strange outfit. Played yep. by Batman 1966 films Catwoman, Lee Merriweather. Um, and one of the few women in the original series that Kirk doesn't try to sleep with. Uh, for understandable reasons, because she basically shows up and in, in calls out someone by name, and then she has a touch that is instantly fatal to them. Uh, and so she's plaguing uh, both the Enterprise uh, and the landing party on the planet. There's kind of this cat and mouse thing. And then the Enterprise is almost destroyed by the irregularities um, caused by its teleportation. But Spock and Scotty... And it's also uh, stuck at like, what, 8 or 10 or something. Yeah, yeah. But um, So Spock and Scotty fix everything and then, you know, rush back to the planet and beam down just in time for a red shirt, an unnamed red shirt to save the day by destroying the central computer of the outpost. Which was surprising. <laughs> especially especially given Kirk explicitly told Spock to do it. And Spock hey, just sort of stood there while the Sp red shirt did the Spock, work. Spock doesn't phaser people. He has people to do that for him. <laughs> this red shirt was actually just Spock's manservant. Aren't they all? True. Um, yeah, I think this one, it's it go plays into, and I saw this brought up a bit in uh, sort of stuff that I was reading whilst looking for my trivia. It plays into this thing that the original series did a few times, and I think still we still got a couple of episodes uh, that I've not seen yet where it does it apparently of trying to do a horror in space, and it works to an extent because you've got this mystery of this of this character, this woman who appears and kills people but it doesn't because it takes so long for anyone else to even notice her It, the tension doesn't feel like it's there because I mean, everyone's just sort of going, stuff's happening but she's she's not like they don't even know she exists until Watkins dies I mean it's, I remember Moss 
who we had Monroe, who we had on um, podcast talk about Prophet and Lace, which is genuinely the worst episode of Star Trek ever filmed. Um, right. They pointed out when they were doing the TOS rewatch that um, TOS is at its heart a horror show, psychological horror, like the man no, trap. Um, Miri um, Return the Archons well, they're, they're horror episodes and this is really feel like that which survives feels like after a lot of episodes which are genre fiction or proper sci-fi or hornblower in space across season 2 and early season 3 to try and do that horror in space again and they've kind of lost their touch yeah I, it, it's not the best example of of the sort of horror and space trope at all. See, I, no. I, again, I, I find myself disagreeing, and it might just be a personal taste thing, because I was just saying that for, for Gideon, um, I think is clearly playing for horror and is kind of this failed mindfuck horror that I don't like, um, because there's not really a sense of internal logic to it. I like this episode because I think it plays very fair with what's going on, what's happening. And the characters don't always know everything, but the mystery isn't the point to me. I think it puts the characters far enough on the back foot that the drama is always, how are we going to survive to the next commercial break? And I think that's much more successful than whatever vague existential thing that, that Gideon was going for. I suppose. Yeah, I, I can see it. I think, to an extent, I think that's something that plays very differently depending on sort of how you've experienced it. Because you you said sort of the how are we going to survive to the next commercial break thing. Obviously, in part because I'm watching this on Netflix or on DVDs, and in part because obviously we do have commercial breaks in the UK, but not all channels have them, and they're not normally as long or as over the top necessarily as American ones. It it. it plays very differently because we don't necessarily have that trope as much in our TV. I mean, I, I mean, I guess, but I, really I was just trying to make a comment on, on the pacing and how I, I think it, it keeps that energy up and I've been saying most of these episodes I do not feel have been successful with the pacing. They have not had enough story for 50 minutes. And here I thought, you know, considering that it's basically just a bunch of complications layered on uh, something that's pretty simple, it, and it's totally your mileage varies, but it, it, it works for me and it engages me. Yeah, that's fair, that's fair enough. A um, couple of bits of trivia for this one. Not a huge amount, but there wasn't a huge amount for much of these episodes, to be honest. Um, this is the last original series episode to not make any mention of the star date. So it's the last original series episode where we don't know when it happens. Um, it's... Also, the last again, I not I preface these normally by uh, making the point of I'm getting all this trivia off IMDb, so if it's wrong, <laughs> blame them, not me. Um, but apparently, this is also the last episode to feature an on-screen death of an Enterprise crewman Ooh. for the original series. There's a few uh, who are mentioned as having died of Rogelian fever um. in a later episode, but there's it doesn't happen on screen. Interesting. I thought, um, I thought sorry, it was very successful, actually, when she pops up before they even beam down and then kills the transporter chief. 
Like, who yeah, does that? When do you see that? Yeah. That's pretty that... horrifying, actually. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just remembered the scene in this where we have Scotty go into the Dilithium chamber, and mm. that's actually quite cool. Yeah, and almost get, gets blown out and of almost, the space. Because yeah. I think that's fun, because it's a very... You'll see, I mean, you'll see, Sam, because you'll watch TNG and... Voyager, but it's a very different. It's a very different and much more preferable portrayal of what an engine room looks like. In that Scotty basically had to go down a deck and crawl through a crawl space to get to a really finickety place to do this, as opposed yeah. to in later Star Trek shows where you just pull a crystal out of a drawer, which seems incredibly <laughs> dangerous. Yeah, I think that's you know that's... it's basically the equivalent of um, in later seasons, Geordie LaForge just basically reaches and pulls out and he pulls a nuclear isotope rod out of a drawer to have a look at it, which is just fucking insane. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like you say, I've not seen TNG and stuff yet. Um, that's, a, that's a trope that comes up a lot in Stargate as well, which is something that I've mm. watched quite a lot of. And it, it, it does always feel like, well, this isn't, this isn't how machinery works. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, <laughs> when we were talking about uh, Whom Gods Destroy, one of the bits of trivia I had for that was that it's one of the uh, I think one of two or three times where there is a very clear shot of Scotty's missing finger because James Duhan lost a finger Ooh. in the war Yeah, James Duhan was it. on D-Day on he D-Day, yeah. came back from a night patrol a sentry panicked and shot him eight times with a brain gun um, Yeah If I remember correctly, he took one, he took one bullet to that finger, two in the arm, two in the right arm, and then three in the chest. One I... passed through him. Two hit the cigarette case his brother had given him as a present. Yeah. Don't know um... why I know that. <laughs> yeah, James Duhan was a badass, basically. To... He must have James, walked around James... with a when he got to the airport. Like he must have had a card with him. Like the well, metal detector the... will go off. Don't be alarmed. Well, he was in the artillery. Right? So on D-Day, he killed two snipers trying to establish a position. And then after he was ferried out after being shot eight times, he was told you can't be a frontline soldier. So he retrained as a um, pilot because the air observation pilots were all artillerymen. So he retrained as a pilot. And um, he was called the craziest... He was nicknamed the craziest pilot in the Canadian Air, air Force, even though he was an <laughs> army. Because um, what he used to do was do slaloms between the telegraph poles on Salisbury Plain. So Salisbury Plain, for those who don't know, Salisbury Plain is the big, um, it's a huge swath of land in southern England, which is the military training camp in southern England. It's where the army does its manoeuvres, so it's completely empty. And there's a line of telegraph poles, and he'd taken, it would have been an Oster, a light aircraft, which can hold like 50 mile an hour speeds in the air, really low speeds. And he took one of those and he used to slalom it between the telegraph poles at ground level, which is <laughs> insane. Wow. I'm so not. Balls. I'm not sure. I, I, Patrick probably won't get this reference. I'm hoping that you will, Jack. Um, are we 100 percent sure that James Duhan wasn't secretly Mad Jack Churchill? <laughs> Can they ever see together? Think so I think Mad Jack Churchill deserves. I think that they're in different levels of madness. They they were they were, they were both a bit baddie though. Yeah, but, but you yeah. know we do see him with the claymore in Day of the Dove. There you go. <laughs> It all comes together, and Look Mad up, Jack kids. Churchill was an actor as well. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, to bring it back around to, to what I was saying, yeah, so Whom God's Destroy is one of the few times where you see uh, the missing finger 
quite visibly because James Duhan would normally try to keep his hand out of shot. Um, yeah, you can see he walks around with his arm, hand around his back, which is quite funny. Yeah. Um, and that which survives is another example when he's working on the engine. You can see it there. Hmm. Makes sense because I couldn't use a, a stunt hand for that shot. Which they do sometimes on the transporter. Anyway, a yeah. couple a couple final points I wanted to make. One, I giggle like a loon with that line about if I wanted Russian history, I would have brought Chekhov. That's quite a fun line. It is funny. Although I, I, I said this on Twitter again earlier. I wasn't live tweeting this one, but I did make a couple of points about it. Uh, no, you wouldn't have because Chekhov is shit at Russian history. Oh, you're no fun. Uh, and then the other thing I, I really respect is when, when we do finally learn about the nature of Losira, I think in retrospect it's played really beautifully by Lee Merriweather as... It is a beautiful scene, yeah. And in, 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 in general, and going back to the whole performance, as not, not a person, but a computer that's been so influenced by a person who is a pacifist and hates to kill that it's hindering itself from accomplishing its own mission it's just it's just really nice yeah so um last episode for this one and we'll try and wrap this one up relatively quickly because we're getting on a bit um lights of zeta i just watched this today yeah i was gonna say we all we all must have watched it today I was going to say, yeah. you know, whew, thank God we're almost to the end of the episodes. Then I thought, oh, is that too snarky? And then you said Lights of Zatar, and I'm like, ugh. Well, all, all I'm going to say is I finished Lights of Zatar about 20 minutes before we started this podcast. And once I'd done that, I immediately went through to the kitchen and found the bottle of Baileys that I'd been saving. <laughs> and it's not there anymore, is all I'm going to say. See, this it's is just a bad episode. It's, it's a very bad episode. Un- unsuccessful, thought... unsuccessful space horror and unsuccessful romance. Scotty who... should not be allowed to fall in love with women. <laughs> I, I was going to say that. Only who, be thought, who thought to Scotty fall deserved it? Well, not class engines. Scotty is in love with the Enterprise. This is well established. He doesn't. He doesn't need a woman. Okay, well, allegedly things happen in this episode. There's a new crew member that they're, that Scotty's in love with, and they're going to bring her to this outpost, uh, Memory Alpha, uh, which is the only enduring legacy of this episode because the Star Trek wiki is called Memory Alpha. So it's another of those trivia questions of episodes, like Metamorphosis or Whom Gods Destroy. Uh, but anyway, uh, there's a mysterious glowing space thingy, and, you know, strap in because you're going to get more of those. But a mysterious glowing space thingy that uh, possesses our uh, Mary Sue of the week. Um, and by the way, it also killed everyone on Memory Alpha off screen. And that's how Which we get our obligatory, our obligatory... It killed everyone on Memory Alpha and then wiped, appears to have wiped the entire content. Database, yeah. Which is barely Which is fucking mentioned. Um, but yeah, so that's how we get our obligatory horror imagery. Um, and then... Uh, you know, they let the they let the woman mind meld with the aliens a little bit more and not resist them so much and get an idea of who they are so that then they can kill them by sticking them in the chamber from Space Seed. Um, and then everyone agrees that, uh, oh, she's such a strong and great woman and we're just going to send her right back to her job. So they drop her back on Memory Alpha. Again, where everyone is dead except her. That is fucking horrible. Yeah. 
and they're like, oh, she's of sound mind. Let's, let's, yeah, let's send her to the That's the first thing they say. The first line of the episode is Scotty saying, you're the sanest, smartest woman I've ever met. (laughs) Which, I mean, okay, sure, whatever, whatever, Scotty. (laughs) We're nearly at the end. Just go along with it. (laughs) But it's like... Okay, but but then that's not the craziest thing. We were talking about this before we started recording. That's not the craziest thing. So not only is this someone's self-insert Scotty romance fanfic, but the person whose self-insert Scotty romance fanfic it is is the creator of the ludicrously popular children's puppet TV Lamb Chop. What? The creator of Lamb Chop conceived and wrote this episode for television. I think that that's a reference that, I mean, I, I think about half of my audience is American, so they'll get that. That That's not a thing over here at all, I don't think. No. But well, look it up, just like you, you know, you, if you, you looked up Mad Jack Churchill, now look up Lamb Chop. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. We, we'd spent a long time talking about Mad Jack, and half our audience is not going to know who that was. The lame half. Yeah, true. <laughs> Just look up Mad Jack Churchill, and then you'll never find another man attractive again. <laughs> Some folks out there saying promise. <laughs> True. Um, we've gone really, really off the rails towards the end of this episode, and I just not. Who got... needs to stay on topic? I choose not. Well, why to do you think I've been time. giving the synopses? Because I haven't, uh, I haven't been on Boozahall, just caffeine. <laughs> oh, I am. I'm gonna address for people who managed to get this far into the episode that I <laughs> have had a very rough week yeah. and I'm not entirely with it this week. We love so you. So I sort of I gave Patrick the job of holding this episode together and he's doing a valiant job. But he's I doing think... a valiant job. I oh, made the you. podcast before this and it was a very bad episode of Enterprise <laughs> and I've not had the best week in my life generally but it's still just like fuck season 3 of TOS sucks. Yeah but on the other <laughs> hand Enterprise yeah, that's yeah. true. So um, this isn't this isn't the most structured episode of the of the podcast, but we're we're getting through it. <laughs> if I can say it's because I had to go back and rewatch and watch all of these essentially for the first time. Like I think I had seen that which survives um, and Elan, which no coincidence are my two favorites of this batch. Um, yeah. But the others I all knew from synopsises, and I read that, and I'm like, no, I don't really need to see that. You know, I read the review, and it said, this episode is awful. And I'm like, cool, I'm going to save the 50 minutes. So this is the sacrifice I'm making for you. But it's been a very interesting historical experience because it feels like at this point, the show, sort of knowing it's, it's, it's ending more or less, but is kind of doubling back on its own mythology and establishing things for no joke intended, the next generation of fandom. Like, we've got... We're bringing back in the Andorians and the Tellarites, just, like, getting those incidental aliens in there and and fleshing out the idea of the Federation and that it has a history and it fought battles to be established. And, and you know, Saurian Brandy gets mentioned again at some point, And it's just... just fleshing out this, this universe in the backdrop of its awful little plots and i think it's it's been an interesting sort of pop archaeology experience for me so thank you i mean the thing to remember that i think people forget is that fandom kind of as we understand it 
was kind of invented by this show. Yeah. You know, I think it had existed to some extent in things like the Sherlock Holmes Society and um, groups around Agatha Christie. But as we understand it with, you know, huge fan works and conventions and law kind of was invented by this show. So, I think, you know, when you say, oh, they're laying the groundwork for fan stuff, I don't think they knew they were doing that. They did. So, so what, what you're saying I... is that we have Gene Rodenbury to blame for the existence of bronies. Yes. <laughs> well, we have yeah, Gene in, Rodenbury, in a very Gene Rodenbury way, to yes. blame for the existence of the fandom menace. Great. Well, we don't. Oh, but no, that that was worse. What I, what I think we're worse. seeing, though, the reason why I mentioned fandom is because I think we're seeing feedback because it's not that the producers decided, oh, you know, we established that Andorians and Tellarites are in the Federation. We should use them again. No, I, they showed up in the journey to Babel, and then you know, and then fans. I think, and I know it wasn't the '70s; it hadn't really taken off yet. But there was still enough of a fandom to have the letter writing campaigns, and all the cast members were receiving letters, and that there was sort of this this embryonic dialogue uh, coming into effect. And then you know, Gene Kuhn in season one is the one who like standardized all this stuff. So it was Starfleet, yeah. not USPA. And then what really struck me, like almost struck me between the eyes, um, because even in the third season this is changing. Remember how in the Enterprise incident that they pretended they had never heard of a cloaking device before? Even yeah. though the last time they encountered the Romulans was all about the cloaking device? Yeah. Well, in, in Let That Be the Last Battlefield, it's the exact opposite. They have this invisible ship purely to save money, and then they justify it by having them ask each other, is it the Romulans again with their dastardly cloaking device? It's so it, it feels, yeah, it feels like the, the cast and the crew are, be, are educating themselves about the world of the show as they're creating it, and it created this thing to... To latch on to that could grow into the animated series and the convention culture and all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for, for for all of its flaws, the original series and the people behind it and the people who watched it and enjoyed it and, like you said, sort of created this fan and culture. They, we we do have a lot to sort of. I was gonna say a lot to thank them for. Some of it's not necessarily positive, but <laughs> they had a huge influence on even to this day how modern media works oh yes because even to this day you have stuff like i mean obviously you already had comic books and stuff like that before this but with the way that sort of fan circles work around stuff like the mcu and these sort of very big franchises that have this fan culture around them yeah that is very much based on the fan culture that was built by Star Trek. Well, and, and to me, the key is the feedback loop that the people who are making the show become aware of what people like about the show. And not just on the level of this is how we get good ratings, but on that granular level of what are people emotionally responding to and then and telling us about. Yeah. It's um, interesting. It's, you know, I think it's interesting what fandoms do with... Um, Shit stories. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, pop, this is why I said pop archaeology and not like an exciting showing of critically acclaimed uh, content. But I mean, you come back to that again and talking about. We've gone very off topic here, but um, it's it's fine. It's fine. Um, you come back to this sort of talking about uh, 
fans keeping a culture alive and obviously some of series three was written by people who were fans of the first couple of series and became writers in their own right and then obviously you had the animated series you had the movies but trek was off the air for a while after that and kept alive by this same fan culture and you look at other franchises where like something that i enjoy a lot and i spend a lot of my time watching and consuming is doctor who and after that went off the air in the 80s you had a very similar sort of fan response of keeping this franchise alive and having they they kept it was what 26 years it was off the air and what, fan um, culture yeah. in the form that was created by star trek is arguably responsible with for keeping the franchise alive for long enough that it could then have its revival so it, it's a huge impact that this that this culture that Star Trek created has then had on our lives in general going forward. Oh yeah, I mean you can't overstate it. Like you know, I went to a Star Trek convention when I was eight years old. I still have William Shatner's signature from that around here somewhere. <laughs> but yeah. Um... Anyway, I guess now is when I would say my my at least one good thing that I tried to find about this episode, but I don't think I have it for Zatar. This is this is <laughs> this is my dud of the batch. It's That's... a dud episode, and um, not a lot actually happens. I'll say I'll I'll say a positive thing about this episode, and it's a very minor positive thing. I really really like the final line because <laughs> you have. Sorry, it's not, it's not the final line. It might be the line before or something like that. But you have. Uh, McCoy and Spock agreeing that the... Oh, that's a good ending, yeah. Yeah, agreeing that the uh, lieutenant, she's a lieutenant, I think, uh, is sound of mind enough to continue working. And then they call up Scotty and Scotty's, yes, I also agree. And Kirk's responds, uh, while this is an Enterprise first, McCoy, Spock and Scotty find themselves in complete agreement. It's very, <laughs> it's very like, intentionally oh, cute. It's 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 yeah. a nice ending. It's fun. But yeah, that's that's the lights of Zeta. So um <laughs> we've very much um gone off off the rails for this episode, but we'll try and bring it back just for the last last little bit, because what we tend to do at the end of each episode, I say on episode three, um, is go round and say what was our favourite episode of the batch and what was our least favourite. Uh, so, Jack, you're the guest, so we'll start with you. What was your oh, favourite shit. episode of this batch of episodes? Elan. Really? Combat. Oh, okay. That's it. You uh, know, I, it has a fundamentally really good, well-paced, wonderful sequence of pitting a Constitution-class starship up against a D7-class battlecruiser. That, you know, well that's fair enough. Well done. It's and good. Good Kirk for the. And Chekhov and Sulu are on point, and we get you know, we get all the proper age of sail tropes about you know the, he talks about phaser crews and torpedo. It's fun. I like the battle scene. It's good. That uh, that stuff always warms my my heart to this day. All the spaceship nerd crap. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of Troy. Twenty minute. My favorite episode of this batch. Was the twenty-minute battle sequence in a lot of Troy's. Also, because that has really good music, which That's never funny. appears again. That music was written for a lot of Troy's, not used before it, not used after it. It's wonderful. Patrick, what about you? Favorite episode of that batch? Uh, it's it's not close in either direction. Um, Elan is my second favorite. That which survives is my first favorite. 
Zatar is my least favorite, and then the others are sort of just barely hovering above Zatar. That that's fair. I think I'm honestly. I think Jack pulled me around there. Actually, I think I was gonna say that which survives, but thinking back on it, I might have to say Alana Troyes for that one. It's it has a lot of not good bits, but it's the episode that I would probably have the most fun rewatching of the lot. Um, yeah, it's a fun one to watch. Yeah, like any of the others. It's fun in the way that stuff like Spock's Brain is fun, where it's very clearly not a good episode, but it's not... Well, I mean, bits of it are kind of offensive, it, but it's not... Over, <laughs> overall, it's not offensively bad. Yeah, it, It's not much more offensive than an indifferently staged Taming of the Shrew. Uh, and, you know, people still watch that. I think that, of, all, of all of them, that one feels like an event episode like it's chock full of special effects and high drama um and it was non not coincidentally it was the second produced episode whereas all the rest of these were produced in that back half of season three right um so that's favorites and patrick you did mention your least favorite there being zeta uh jack what was your least favorite i have a feeling i can guess but so let that be a lot fabrifield is this a uh, yeah, I had Listen a feeling. Listen to the episode of I Quit Star Trek where we talk about it. I just yeah. don't want to repeat myself. I, I'll, I'll probably include a link to your episode on that specifically uh, in the description of this podcast as well, because, yeah, I mean, for me, obviously I have less personal sort of connection to that episode. It Don't get me wrong, I still think it's absolutely abysmal. Uh, but I don't know whether... like. I'm torn on whether to say that that's my least favourite or Mark of Gideon. They're both awful episodes. And this 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 block has has taken a lot out of me. <laughs> it's... Oh god. No. I'm not looking forward to Turnabout Intruder. I have been pointedly avoiding that episode for the past 20 years. Oh god. That's that's not a good sign. We're nearly at the end of the original series. For better and, and then we for got worse. the animated series. Um, yeah, I think we'll wrap up there because I'm completely losing the plot at this point. That was a you did very, great. very confusingly structured episode three of the Never Seen Trek podcast. Uh, Jack, do you have anything you want to plug? Obviously, you've got your podcast that you've mentioned a couple times. Oh uh, yeah, so I do a podcast with my friend Olivia called I Quit Star Trek. Every week we take a bad episode of star trek and we talk about how bad it is why it's bad why we hate ourselves for doing this podcast every week um but we also talk about you know the interest of why it's bad um why perhaps it's good why it made us think it's a lot of taking star trek apart and making it think about why it ticks or more specifically why it doesn't um we tend to focus on having sort of members of the star trek community on uh, so you know I think we have we've, I mean, Sam is on this week's episode. Um, yeah. We've had uh, you know people, lots of people you know, lots of people you know float around and start Twitter. Um, we've also had um, John Billingsley on, uh, who played Doctor Flox in Enterprise. We had Noah as I can never pronounce his name right, as a catch who played um, Rin on. Oh yeah, I know him. For Disco season three, he was great. We also had a um, award-winning comedian and parliamentary candidate for Sanit South, Al Murray on. Which, is a major Which I will never mine. forgive you for. 
<laughs> never, never. But we mainly have guests on from the Trek community because I think the best aspects of Trek are the people who listen to it and how it affects us all differently and what it means to us. So um, come hit us up at Quit Star Trek at I Quit Star Trek, available um, anywhere you get your podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at Quit Star Trek Pod. Personal plugs. Um, I am currently writing a long fan project where I detail the history of the Federation Klingon Cold War. You can find that at the edge of midnight wordpress.com. You can also find it in my Twitter at Bad Socialism. Uh, this is taking long, but I also am currently published in a alternate history anthology called um, Great Shot and Guillotines. I have a story in that called Beyond the Boundaries about a failed revolution in Trinidad. Please buy the book, read the stories. I'll get 10p, but it'll be my 10p. <laughs> and you get Congrats. to learn something about West Indian labor politics. Um, any other plugs? Um, donate to your local food bank. <laughs> Basically, uh, Jack is much more interesting than than me at the very least. I won't speak for Patrick. And go oh, and check yeah. out all of their work because it's very interesting. Um, and definitely give them a follow because, again... Oh, Twitter, yeah, you can but... follow me at Bad Socialism, which I'm still a suffering pleased that I got that Twitter handle. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, that was, that was a good grab. Um, but until next week, I have been Sam or never underscore seen underscore Trek on Twitter. I've been Patrick in Gears 42 on Twitter. I've been John or Jack. Uh, I'm Bad Socialism on Twitter. As I and that's, that's been episode three of the Never Seen Trek podcast. Yeah, Thank thanks you so much for hosting. Thank you Thank so you. much. Delighted Thank you. <laughs>